0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Mapleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you to know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. So I want to begin this morning with what is really a basic, simple question it's a question we could ask really anytime that we open up God's Word. The question is, what does Jesus mean to you? Today, right now, what does Jesus mean to you? And know what I'm not saying. Realize that I'm not saying, uh, what do you believe Jesus to be like? Uh, I'm not asking what you know about Jesus to be true. I'm asking, really, what happens in your heart when you think about Jesus? Does the name of Jesus move you with affection? Does it infuse you with joy? Is there a change in your disposition or your emotion whatsoever? Or are you really kind of indifferent? Or perhaps even worse, offended, maybe even put off? Earlier this week, I was reading a book given to me during Pastor Appreciation Month by a dear saint in our church. In it are a series of letters and encouragements from a pastor and theologian who lived back in the 1700s, a man by the name of John Brown of Haddington. There are many things I'm sure we could say about John Brown of Haddington and the life he lived, and he was a very productive man for the Lord. But uh, one thing I noticed in this book is it talked about how as he got older, he wrote more extensively than ever regarding his own thoughts and affections for Christ. And I want to give you a sampling of some of the things he said as he neared his final days on earth. He said, quote, If Christ be magnified in my life, that is the great matter I wish for. He also said, I have served several masters, but none so kind as Christ." I have dealt with many honest men, but none so kind as Christ. Had I 10,000 hearts, they should all be given to Christ. And had I 10,000 bodies, they should all be employed in laboring for his honor. He also said, Oh, commend Jesus. I have been looking at him for these many years, and never yet could I find a fault in him. Many a comely person I have seen, but none so comely as Christ. We are a bit removed from the 1700s and that beautiful old way of speaking about things, and yet we really can comprehend what he was saying. To him, Jesus was everything. To him, no one was sweeter, no one was more approachable. No one was more lovely or more attractive or more comforting than Jesus. And my question for you this morning is, do you feel the same way? Is your heart warmed by Jesus Christ? Is it cheered by thoughts of him? Or, again, is there perhaps nothing? Now, I'm guessing that for some of you, the answer is no, I don't feel that way because... Perhaps Jesus is more a subject to study rather than a person to love. Perhaps a point of curiosity, but you haven't made up your mind about him. But for others, you can probably say, well, I think so. And yet, there's also this check in your spirit because you know that in your heart, maybe you've drifted from him a bit as you have become distracted and weighed down, even if though unintentionally by the many responsibilities that are on your plate. Either way, no matter where you're at this morning, this is what I hope will be accomplished in our time in God's Word, that you will see the goodness and grandeur of Jesus as we look again at the final hours of His life. And with that, I want to invite you to turn open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 26, where today we will be studying verses 57 through 75, Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75. And if you didn't bring a Bible... Uh, The words will be available on the screen. Also, if you don't have a Bible, stop by the welcome table. We'd love to give you one today. That would be the greatest gift that we could give to you. Take that home. Follow along with me as I read for us, beginning in verse 57. Matthew writes, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest." And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer? Jesus... uh, have you no answer to make. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I jure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Now I won't bother laboring too much on the background of our passage today, because I think that uh, we've gone through the timeline a great many times. In fact, last week, Pastor Adam gave a, a very good timeline, so you can go listen to that message if you'd like. Uh, But just know this, that Jesus, at this point, he has been betrayed, he has been arrested, and now he is moving through a series of examinations or trials. Um, But if you read the text we're in today, you wouldn't know the extensiveness of these exams, so allow me to fill in some of the details for you, as there were six distinct phases that Jesus went through before he was crucified. So first, you had the trial with Annas. This was actually a preliminary examination rather than a formal one. Annas was a former high priest. In case you don't know uh, much about the high priest, it would have been the highest religious position in Judaism. In fact, the high priest was the only person allowed to enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, Traditionally, Uh, This was supposed to be actually a lifelong role that was passed down from father to son within the hereditary line of Aaron, the brother of Moses, according to the Torah. But since at the time of Jesus, the Jews lived under the authority of Rome, it came to pass that Rome would depose certain high priests and force a change. And so they exerted a certain influence over the priesthood. And this happened quite a few times, hence Annas was not the acting high priest in Jesus' day, but Caiaphas was, who happened to be the son-in-law of Annas. Uh, Annas served as the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, then he was succeeded by other family members. Uh, Needless to say then, that though Annas was not the acting high priest, he still possessed all the respect and recognition that came with that position, and if it helps, uh, just keep in mind, the Jews' perspective, it was kind of understood that once you were a high priest, you were always a high priest, whether Rome would acknowledge that or not. So the first trial is before Annas, and we know this because of the Gospel of John. If not for uh, John 18, verses 12 through 14, we wouldn't know this because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all began with Jesus before the Sanhedrin. So that's phase one. Then's phase two where there's a trial before the Sanhedrin at night, and that is what we're looking at today. That's what takes up the bulk of our text. Then is phase three, where the Sanhedrin is uh, meeting at daybreak. Then is phase four, which is a trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of Judea. Then is phase five, which is a trial before Herod. And then lastly, phase six is a second trial before Pilate, where Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, who conducts another session in which he attempts to unsuccessfully release Jesus. So that's kind of the sequence of things. That's the order. And again, today we are looking at phase two, where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. And uh, as you can tell, Jesus is kind of punted back between all sorts of people, right? And there are several reasons for this, but the most important would be this, that the Jews certainly wanted Jesus dead, but they also didn't have the authority to do that. No, only Rome had that authority. Why? Simply put, because when Rome conquered a people, they tended to try and allow uh, that group to function with their own leadership and according to their own laws as much as they could. Um, Of course, they still wanted to maintain control and a grip on things, uh, but, you know, this garnered some leadership if you could allow people to function with their own leaders. But there were certain restrictions, and certainly the death penalty was one of those. So as you think about the Jews, uh, know this, that they function with the Mishnah as the law of the land. And they were able to govern civil situations according to that law, but they were still unable to wield the sword. And so the question became really for the religious leaders, how do we get rid of Jesus but not upset the Romans so as to lose our freedom to govern ourselves? And the answer was obvious. Let's make sure we got Rome involved. Uh, But here's the thing. Rome didn't really want to be involved in religious affairs. They didn't. So what happens? When Jesus is brought before the Romans, the charges are no longer religious in nature, but political as Jesus is accused of sedition and leading a rebellion, which would have been, of, of course, more interest to Rome than any claim that Jesus made regarding being the Son of God. Now, we'll talk about this more next week, but for now, here's what I want you to understand, that as you think about the religious leaders, we can't help but notice that these people are in an absolute frenzy. I mean, these people are zealous, they are stirred up, and they are as bloodthirsty as you can be. They want Jesus dead so badly that they will do anything to make that happen. And we could even say that they have a bloodlust. Uh, That phrase is actually something uh, of a a phrase to describe what happens oftentimes in battle, uh, where when soldiers are caught up in war, they kind of lose sense of themselves and they get lost in all of the killing that's going on. Uh, The religious leaders have that. All they can see is red. They want Jesus dead. And with that as our backdrop, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to marvel at the profound character of, Of Christ, as we see what he is willing to endure from his enemies, which I would say really do end up making him supremely trustworthy as the king of our lives. And so here's our outline then today, five faith-deserving attributes of Jesus, five faith-deserving attributes of Jesus. So where do we begin then? We begin with this first we can't help but notice Jesus' purity in lifestyle, his purity in lifestyle. So notice the scene. Uh, Jesus is before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, again the highest Jewish religious and legal authority. And here they are all meeting at the residence of the high priest, which would have been a very sizable abode. And we know this because uh, there would have needed to be enough room uh, to accommodate. The members of the Sanhedrin, of which, if everyone was in attendance, there would have been 71. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, because it's very possible and likely that not everyone was in attendance. In any case, right now, I want to focus on something else, the challenge that the Sanhedrin had with Jesus because of his impeccable character. So here is Jesus being examined, but the Sanhedrin finds itself in a bit of a pickle. Why? Well, because they're apparently having a hard time finding people to come up and testify against Jesus, bringing some solid evidence that he really is this terrible, awful criminal. And uh, you think about that, right, because if Jesus really is that bad of a criminal, I mean, what would you expect? You'd kind of expect it'd be very easy to find some witnesses to come and testify against him, uh, but, but that's not happening at all, right? Uh, And so here uh, the Sanhedrin is, they are looking for a couple of people to come forward and incriminate Jesus. And let me tell you why this was uh, very important, how the process got carried out. Uh, We learned from the book of Deuteronomy that it was important that any any accusation that was made against any person for any crime needed to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. In fact, let me read you what it says in Deuteronomy 19.15. It states that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So every crime needed multiple witnesses, and more importantly, they needed to be trustworthy witnesses, right? Which is also why the law provided strict consequences for anyone who was a false witness. Uh, for example, if someone accused another person of a crime they didn't actually commit, uh, then that person had actually become guilty for the crime they were accusing someone else of. And so if someone accused a, a person of being adulterous, right, and that was found out to be untrue, what happened? Again, the accuser would then pay the punishment for that respective crime. So picture the scene here. Uh, the Sanhedrin is bringing in one witness after another. And the first person speaks, gives a, bit of a, gives a bit of a story, next person comes in, but things don't match. And they just keep this going. And we don't know how many witnesses actually came to the stand, uh, but it was apparently quite a few because we are told in Matthew, specifically verse 59... Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. All right? So we don't know if it was 30, 60, 100, but it was clearly enough that Matthew saw fit to uh, comment on it in his gospel. Now, I want you to think about that, especially in light of what we know about Jesus, because I mean, this was someone who was readily available. This was somebody who was uh, constantly around other people. This was someone who had a very public ministry, and his life, for all intents and purposes, was uh, was extremely an open book, right? For three years, he preached and taught and healed and traveled. And frankly, even from the earliest days, he had his enemies, didn't he? All sorts of people that really did not care for the things that he was speaking against. He, very early on in his ministry, offended the religious leaders. And yet, after three years of people being able to follow him and study him and be around him, where are the witnesses? They can't find any. And so this is the best they can do. They finally get two people who will agree on this. Two people who claim that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, that was, of course, a very major accusation because, as you likely understand, the temple was the center of Jewish religious life and the symbol of God's presence among his people. And so here's what you have then, a statement that would have been seen as usurping God's authority and a threat against the very heart of the Jewish faith. More than that, it also would have been interpreted as an act of rebellion against the established order, which not even the Romans would have tolerated since it would have upset peace in the land. So, in essence, here's what you have then a statement that, if true, is both blasphemous and seditious. And yet we have to ask but was it true? Did Jesus actually say that? Uh, interestingly, you will not actually find Jesus making this specific claim. Later in Matthew, and we see this statement repeated, but this is after the fact that Jesus is on the cross, right? So he's been accused of these things. Uh, people have said this of him. And now here we see him. Uh, we're told in Matthew 27, uh, verses 39 and 40, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Um, so we see it mentioned there in, in Matthew 27, but uh, you know, the fact is, we don't actually see Jesus saying this himself. In fact, the closest we get is in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. You might recall Jesus actually drove the money changers out of the temple. Uh, Jesus actually did this twice. He did this at the beginning of his ministry. He also did it at the end of his ministry. And the first time after he got done driving out the money changers, we're told the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, listen to this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. He said if you destroyed the temple, he could raise it up. Then we're told this information in verse 20. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Now here's the most important clarifier. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So you see what's happening here with Jesus, right? The religious leaders or these false witnesses, they have taken a soundbite and completely disregarded Jesus' actual intent or meaning. And uh, this happens still a lot today, doesn't it? Uh, People grab a soundbite and they ignore absolutely everything else. They don't care if an idea is accurate so long as it fits their narrative and affirms their preconceived beliefs. And we see the same today even for you here, you Christians, right? Christians are labeled every hateful thing under the sun, uh, they are labeled as hateful, sexist, bigoted, and every mean thing that the culture can conjure up. And yet, when this happens, what are we told? If you go back earlier on to the Sermon on the Mount, we are reminded of these words that Jesus said: "If that happens to you, here's what you ought to do: do a little jig, do a little dance." Because blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And uh, Jesus was the perfect example of someone who experienced the same thing. And no doubt he was constantly rejoicing in the Lord in spite of the trials he was suffering under. And uh, you have to be amazed at the irony, right? Because, I mean, Jesus truly is the Prince of Peace. He is the one that comes in the most peaceful manner possible. And uh, even most recently, as we were studying through the Gospel of Matthew, you likely recall, right, but the, the disciple pulls out the sword to defend Jesus and chops off the soldier's ear. And what does Jesus say? Put your soldier away or put your sword down, right? Why? Because he wasn't interested in leading a rebellion, but in going to the cross to save sinners. And this brings us to our next faith-deserving attribute of Jesus. Secondly, his trust in God's justice. His trust in God's justice. Look at verse 63. So Jesus is falsely accused, and then what? We're told, but he was silent. He was silent. And I want you to realize how amazing this is. I mean, this Entire experience that Jesus is living through. This is as unjust of a situation as you could comprehend. Uh, Everything here is completely out of sorts. Uh, Even as you think about this trial, just about every normal legal protocol is literally thrown out the window. Um, How so? Well, certainly we just mentioned the multitude of witnesses that were required, right? And it was pretty tough to find those. Then you have a trial at night. That was completely unheard of since Jewish law typically required trials, especially capital offenses, to be conducted during the day. And because of this, again, earlier I said you know I'd come back to this, but it was very unlikely that everyone was included. It wasn't the day of text messaging and emails and quick communication, right? So if it was just a sudden trial and, hey, we're having it over here, uh, you know, and, and part of that may have been intentional. There may have been actual supporters of Jesus amidst the Sanhedrin that they didn't want present, right? Then you have the speed of the trial. Uh, most trials, of course, were drawn out in order to allow adjourning for further deliberation, but <laughs> there's no interest in that happening in this particular situation. And then you have the location of the trial. As we noted earlier, this particular trial is at the home of the high priest, but That is not usually where meetings were conducted. Uh, They were usually held in the hall of hewn stones in the temple complex. Then you have here an example of self-incrimination, where Jesus is questioned and his comments and answers are directly used against him. And finally, we can't ignore the lack of professionalism by the high priest, because as he hears Jesus, what does he do? He makes a very public spectacle by tearing his clothes before a verdict is even rendered. So, truly, the amount of injustice here is absolutely overwhelming. And I don't know about you, but there is still in all of this a bit of comfort to me, right? Because how many times do you think to yourself, but this is so unjust. This is so unfair. It probably happens every day at some point, doesn't it? We see people get killed simply because they happen to be a certain ethnicity. Someone gets mugged on their way to work, but there's there's no way of knowing who did it, and the criminal gets away. A man this week, you may have read, fired a shot in a subway to carry off a would be robber, but then he's the one that got arrested. Squatters, this happens regularly, take over people's homes, and yet the homeowners can't evict them. They have no rights. These kind of things we see daily, and that doesn't even include the personal stuff, does it? Of which there are many of those. Someone steals your identity, then ruins your credit. You ask for a raise, but you don't get it because someone else, little did you know, has been taking credit for your work. You attempt to adopt, but then you find out you're not approved since you hold to a biblical morality on gender. We see all of these things happen regularly. They are constantly in front of us. And here we are again saying to God, God, what is going on? This is so unjust. But as we look at our passage, what are we reminded of? Oh, God sees it. He understands it. And frankly, he knows it at an unparalleled level because he is the Son of God. Of God, and certainly if anyone deserved justice, was it not him? Absolutely it was. But that's not what he received because even the most basic kindnesses that were given to others, sinful, fallen people, weren't given to him. And yet, how does he respond? Again, he was silent. So there's no self defense, no yelling, uh, no self pity, uh, no vindictiveness, no insults, no, well, just. Just wait till I'm resurrected. Nothing like that. Because he trusted in God's plan and justice, even in the face of injustice. And friends, may I just encourage you to do the same? May I encourage you to wait for the perfect day of God's justice, which is coming. There will be a day. When justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Till that day comes, however, will we ever have perfect justice on earth? No. And frankly, if we strive for that, if we expect that, we will only wear ourselves out and never have any peace. Now, this is not to say that we stop caring about justice or advocating for it. Not at all. But we also need to realize that God's perfect justice will never come until the future. And so, rest in Christ, trust in him, trust in God's perfect plan. Don't feel the need to right every wrong, don't feel the need to vindicate every past hurt or prove your innocence or fix every problem. One day it will all be taken care of and Jesus knew that this would happen and so he trusted himself to the Father's plan. And so we have seen Jesus' purity and lifestyle. We have seen his trust in God's justice. And this brings us to our third faith-deserving attribute of Jesus. Third, his owning of divine titles. Now, a moment ago, we talked about how great the injustices were against Jesus, right? But a big reason why these injustices were so significant certainly had to do with who they were against. And who was that? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And we are reminded of this in verse 63, look there, notice what the high priest says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now it's interesting, even the statement, I adjure you, (laughs) I adjure you by the living God? He's essentially like putting Jesus under an oath an oath of telling the truth because they're in God's presence. Well, yeah, because Jesus is God. There's a certain irony going on here, right? And notice these aren't questions, but these are assertions. And the religious leaders have obviously heard Jesus say these types of things, but since he's on trial, the belief is that it would be a lot easier if Jesus would just affirm these things as he's standing in front of everyone so that everybody's just on the same page regarding his guilt. And with that, what does Jesus say? How does he respond? He says, You have said so. And now the question ultimately is this Is Jesus actually affirming what they have said, or is this Jesus deflecting? Uh, if he's deflecting, then the sense of what Jesus is saying is kind of, you know, well, that's your statement or your characterization of things, right? So what is he doing? I think it's pretty obvious when you look at what happens. There's no no doubt at all that Jesus is affirming exactly what they have said. And how do we know this? We know this because Caiaphas immediately rips his clothes and says, what further witnesses do we need? And the others around him, they confirm Jesus' guilt. So everyone properly understood what Jesus was saying. And here's the thing not only did he affirm their thoughts, but he actually went above and beyond what they were saying to declare his exalted status and divine authority as the Messiah. And in fact, that's what's most significant about his response because they ask if he's the Christ, the Son of God, right? You notice that. But then he claims a different label. He actually says that they will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And we know Jesus loves this title, this Son of Man title. He uses it often. And as he talks about this, this power at the right hand of God, this coming on the clouds of heaven, these are divine qualities. It's clear that the Messiah is equal with God. And, And what Jesus is saying here connects not only with Psalm 110, verse 1, It also connects with Daniel 7, verse 13. Again, both highlighting the divine qualities of the Messiah. So if there's any doubt, there shouldn't be. Jesus is God, very God. And this is, you look at a passage like this, again, one of the reasons why I am amazed when people say, well, but Jesus doesn't actually say he is God, right? But again, you look at this and you go, well, then what do you do with this? I mean, the implications are clear. Jesus is accused of blasphemy based on his claims because the leaders perceive him as crossing a clear boundary between humanity and deity. And uh, let me just say this is so important that this one issue really is the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. The moment that you just say Jesus is a good person or that he's you know, a good teacher but not God... You are no longer a Christian. We see very clearly, Paul says in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To say that Jesus is Lord is the recognition that He has authority over everyone, everywhere and over all things. And that is exactly what Matthew is trying to prove throughout his gospel, isn't he? Over and over and over again, we have seen that the theme of gospels this of Matthew's gospel is this: Jesus is king. And he is king in every respect. He is king of creation. He is the king of the Gentiles. He is the king of the Jews. And there is nothing that he cannot do. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. He has authority as a teacher, as a healer, and as a miracle worker. So we see Jesus' purity in lifestyle. We have seen his trust in God's justice. We see his owning of divine titles. Now we see this, his accuracy in prophecy. His accuracy in prophecy. Now two weeks ago, you will remember that we looked at a very... A stunning moment, Jesus told the disciples that when he would be struck, that the sheep would scatter, and we read that today in our scripture reading as we read uh, from the book of Zechariah, and uh, you might recall the reaction, you know, they're all, no, that's not going to happen, we love you, Jesus, you're everything to us, Jesus, Uh, Peter, of course, the most, more than anybody else, right? He even goes so far as to say, well, you know, even if these other disciples, if they fall away from you, Jesus, you know, I, I'm not going to go that low. That's not going to happen. And, uh, and then he even goes and he says, well, even if I have to die with you, I will, Jesus, but I will, I will, never, I will never deny you. And you remember what Jesus said in response, right? I mean, he essentially said, Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night, And before the night's even over, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Well, fast forward, right? That was Matthew 26, verse 34. And now here we are in verse 58. And we read, and Peter was following Jesus at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And we're not entirely sure. There's some debate here whether there's some irony going on. A moment ago that Peter was in the presence of Jesus, now he's already changed sides. He's, he's joined himself to the guards, right? And, uh, and he's trying to see the end. He's trying to check out what's going on. He's trying to look from afar, but it, it doesn't take long until all of a sudden Peter is going to be put on the spot. Well, hey, wait a second. Y- you must be with Jesus, You talk weird. You've got an accent. You don't belong here, right? And all of a sudden, he's flushed out, and he's put on the spot. Jesus knew all that was going to happen. It's amazing to think about this, right? I mean, if we were in Jesus' shoes and somebody just said, I love you, man, I'm never going to leave you, I mean, would we just turn around and be like, actually, you're going to leave me, you know, in actually three hours, and you're going to leave me in three hours, and you're going to deny me three times. And then after this happens, this really peculiar thing's going to happen where all of a sudden a rooster is going to crow. There's such specificity with the prophecy of Jesus. The timing is on. The number of denials is on. Even the animal and what it does is on, right? And This affirms, once again, that Jesus is a true prophet. He is qualified to be the Messiah because he speaks from God. He speaks with God's authority, and he can accurately predict the future. And we, today, have the luxury of looking back and go, what a great prophet he was, indeed. Because as you look at his ministry, there were were so many things that Jesus said would happen. So many things that he said would take place. Uh, we could think about, of course, this denial. We could also think about Jesus' betrayal by Judas. Uh, we could think about everything he said regarding his own death and resurrection. Uh, we were going through the Olivet Discourse. We noticed the assurances Jesus gave of the temple's destruction. And later, towards the end, right, we also notice in the Gospel of John how he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, more than ever, we can look back and say he is a true prophet of God. And at, at, at some point, you kind of expect that as you study the person of Jesus, you have to just go, okay, well, at what point am I going to trust him? Like, how many, how many more things need to be proven right in order for me to trust in Jesus? I mean, we're all looking today for some trustworthy news sources, aren't we? It's so tough to find the truth If we could even just have people share the truth with us, we'd go, hey, I'll trust them. And here Jesus is, and he's forecasting what's going to happen. He's giving breaking news before it's breaking news, right? And I I personally, I think prophecy is one of the greatest proofs regarding the reliability of God and the confidence that we can have in him. He tells us what's going to happen, and then it happens. And this brings me to my last faith-deserving quality that we see in our passage today, which is this, in Jesus' mercy and guilt. Jesus' mercy and guilt. Now look at verse 75 because here we, we see the aftermath of Jesus' prediction. Of course, everything that Jesus said would happen does happen. Peter does deny Jesus three times. And then the rooster crows. And this is what happens immediately after this. We're told that Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now, nobody likes experiencing guilt, but I want you to know something today, that guilt, guilt can actually be an incredible gift of God. Guilt is God's way of saying, hey, something's wrong here. And I want to point this out because I have a feeling there's at least a few people here today who feel like they've really blown it this week. In fact, maybe you came in here this morning with a conscience that was so burdened, you're thinking, I don't even belong here. What am I even doing here? I'm such a hypocrite. Do I really love Jesus? What do I think I'm doing here? And maybe you've even been feeling depressed because you know you haven't been living a life that's honoring to God. You know you've let him down, you know you've besmirched his goodness, that you've defied his holiness. If true, however, here's what I want you to realize, that that doesn't have to be the end of the story, right? That doesn't have to be the end of the story because here's what can happen. You can actually allow your guilt to run you straight to the cross and right to the feet of Jesus. Conviction by the Holy Spirit and pointing out when we have strayed from God is such a blessing and is such a gift and it's something that Jesus, what God performed in Peter's life. And we don't get the end of the story, so let me just tell you how this whole thing kind of ends with Peter. Uh, we could look at the Gospel of John. We won't go there, but even though Peter has forsaken Jesus, he's denied Jesus, and even later after Jesus actually is crucified and, and, and resurrected, I mean, here we find Peter is back, Part of the fishing business. He's left the ministry. <laughs> Talk about the kind of guilt he must have felt for doing that. And here Jesus comes and finds him, sits him down, says, Peter, do you love me? Just feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times Peter is asked, Do you love me? And at that moment, Jesus reminds Peter of his love for him. And his commitment to using him. And we know that Peter would be used. He would go on to be a foundational pillar within the body of Christ, within the church. And uh, friends, I just would say this. Do not, do not underestimate the patience of God. and Do not underestimate the, the mercy of God. There truly is. We could look at the statements that were made in our introduction, right? There is none who is more comely than Christ. There is none who is more approachable than Christ. And so what is my encouragement? Run to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, run to Jesus because there's salvation in Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, but you've been caught in a place of struggling with a certain sin, run to Jesus because there you will find more grace than you can possibly comprehend or imagine. Let's close in prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Mapleton or even in the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.